Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Seven Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein. I'm the host of the program. I don't know what the warrior mindset is. I'm coming to you live from a, a borrowed space in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, joining me today, Simon Erickson, Max Chasco. Simon, you're in like the apocalypse. Like, what is going on in Texas? You had a quarter inch of snow. There's no power. Did you have to have a gladiator fight to like get bread? Like, what is going on here? It's it's a tough time down here right now, Dan. It's it's not so much the snow and the ice and the cold, which you know Max is very used to up there in Pittsburgh, but it's a little different down here in Texas when the pipes are bursting and and stuff is is a challenge. Um, it's a tough time for the city. We're we're powering through though. We have power right now, so we're going to march forward and do the live stream. Max, and I would ask you about Pittsburgh, but it's always miserable in Pittsburgh. So, I, no, how, how is the snow situation there? Is it is it impacting your ability to get a Primanti Brothers sandwich? Are things going as well as usual? He's always he's always picking on our sandwiches, Simon. I don't like this guy anymore. We got to talk about this. It's uh, I blame it all on Ben Roethlisberger. He has given me a lot of disdain. And when the Pirates got rid of their cool hats, it kind of was the last thing I liked about Pittsburgh. Uh, but hey, you know, uh, go Penguins. Uh, so anyway, we're going to talk about Berkshire Hathaway. And, and they uh, came out yesterday. They bought some very uninspiring companies. But I wanted a promo. Later in the show, I uh, I did something interesting. I took one of our affiliates, a, a gentleman named Alan Sokloff, who runs the Cruising Altitude newsletter. And Alan and I have been back and forth for like six months on Twitter about Viacom CBS. So we played, a, I'll call it a game, but it's called Change My Mind, where I make points about it, and he tells me why I am wrong. So that's going to be the last segment of the show. It is really fun. If you're someone who, who likes Viacom CBS, if you're someone who's on the fence about it, you're going to learn a lot. But first, let's talk a little bit about Berkshire Hathaway. Simon, they made some purchases, and uh, I wasn't overly thrilled with them. Why don't you clue the audience in on, uh, on what they bought and maybe a little bit of the why? Yeah, the biggest stakes that we saw Buffett take uh, with Berkshire was Verizon and Chevron, right? Which were kind of confidential. They weren't publicly revealed <laughs> until just recently. And I think it was a little underwhelming when you see those kinds of companies on the list. It, it's, it's really interesting to me, Dan, because Buffett has got so much data, right? Berkshire's got so many operating subsidiaries, whether that's retail, whether that's railroads, uh, whether that's the insurance businesses that he runs. And so he's got all of this information flowing into him that guides his investment decisions on what he does with the float. And it's, it's intriguing to me because he tends to buy energy companies when the economy is recovering. He sees that things are getting better. He wants to invest in uh, the, the direction that the economy is heading. And it, it's, this one's a little peculiar and interesting to me to see the Chevron stake because we do think, that, in my opinion, that a lot of um, there's a lot of renewable energy. There's a lot of energy efficiency plays taking place. And to see Buffett take a stake in Chevron, uh, for me, is a little bit curious. Yeah, Max, so you wanted to talk about Chevron. Is this a little bit like, you know, Buffett buying like a, a horse and buggy company? Like this feels to me like a very, very outdated play, even if somehow the economics work. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's two sides, I think, right? On the one hand, I think people are generally a little too pessimistic about uh, the future of oil and gas. You know, um, yes, electric cars are coming and we're going to replace liquid fuels with electric fuels, but it's going to take time. I do think it's going to happen faster than anyone projects. But, you know, oil is used outside of energy applications, right? It's using lubricants uh, and paints and plastics, all these things that power, you know, everyday life. Uh, so those are going to be stickier and harder to get rid of. Um, you know, so Chevron has upstream, which is production and downstream, uh, which is refining. So Chevron is relatively well positioned to navigate some of this turbulence. But, you know, on the other hand, 
uh, it is. It doesn't seem like a very future-proof pick, right, to make. Um, I think Royal Dutch Shell just came out and said, like, we have reached peak oil production. Uh, I think you can make the argument that uh, certain regions in the world have reached peak oil consumption, and that list is only going to grow as time goes on. Uh, so it, it is a, a bit curious from that standpoint. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's not future-proof, right? So, Simon, I'm going to talk a little bit about Verizon in a second, but I wanted to get your thoughts on Chevron as well. This, to me, just, I mean, I don't know. It, it feels like a bad purchase. And I know Warren Buffett's smarter than me, but uh, I don't know. Maybe he's lost a little something off his fastball here. It's it's a different style of investing, right? And so and so maybe we can chat a little bit after the Verizon conversation about the higher level strategy of Berkshire Hathaway, of why Buffett, with all this information, one of the world's greatest investors, no one's debating that, but like, what is he looking for in his the companies that he buys? And he wants the sure thing, right? Even if we go back 25 years to the 1996 Berkshire shareholder letter, he said he would rather invest in a guaranteed good result than take a speculative bet which many attribute to technology companies, on what could be a great result. And so Buffett likes the consistency of the cash flows. Obviously, you're getting those from an oil well that's in place that's going to have a lifespan of 50 years plus. But on the other hand, I mean, the future does change. And, and the question for me is whether Berkshire, who's been resistant for years, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Todd and Ted and how they're inf influencing the strategy, but Berkshire has been resistant to technology. We're in an age of where data is kind of the new competitive advantages. And I think that Berkshire is going to have a tough time uh, with purchases like these of even keeping up with the S&P 500 in terms of performance returns. So Verizon, I get it. It's guaranteed returns, but I also see it as a declining asset because you look at that space. There's three players in the space. There's AT&T, which is fairly diversified in what it, what it owns. Verizon is pretty much a, a pure play. And here's the reality. T-Mobile is going to slowly eat their lunch. Like as a consumer, it's a better experience. And Verizon for years has been marketing itself based on having the best network. You know what it doesn't have by any appreciable measure? The best network. Like, And it, on, on some of the surveys, it does. But it's very, very close. So this idea that there's some massive built-in advantage for Verizon, that's really a marketing angle. It's not a real angle. And T-Mobile, by being customer-friendly, they basically take all the growth in this industry. So it's like, do you want an asset that, that's probably going to manage its decline really well? And that's likely what happens with Verizon. If I was Warren Buffett, I would have bought T-Mobile, but I wouldn't buy any of these companies because they're so capital intense. You know, we've talked a lot about 5G. You know what happens, Simon, when they finish investing in 5G? They start investing in 6G. That's this right. is an endless, endless cycle. And again, I love T-Mobile as a company, but I don't own it because I'm, I, I don't love the business that they're in. I understand what Berkshire's doing. And we're going to talk about their overall strategy. Uh, but we would love your questions and comments. Uh, we're going to take them probably after we do what we're watching, unless they're related to this segment. But uh, Simon, what am I missing on the Berkshire Hathaway strategy? It feels like they're basically taking money and like putting it in a bank account. Like it, it does, they're sitting on $150 billion, which is uh, almost as much as Max is sitting on. Uh, but it, it feels <laughs> to me like it's just such a conservative strategy here. Yeah, Max, we got a chat. If you're holding $150 billion right now, I'm coming to visit you in Pittsburgh, man. All money bags over here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, this is the bigger picture question of Berkshire, right? Is they spent $15 billion in the past three quarters on buying back stock. We knew that, you know, Buffett has kind of put that floor of 1.2 times book value that he says he'll aggressively buy back shares. He has. Berkshire could be undervalued. 
But on the other hand, you know, when Berkshire's going out and buying Verizon and Chevron, it's missing, in, in my opinion, several of the companies that are kind of defining the future, right? Who have been some of the biggest, best performing companies of the past several decades. Google, now Alphabet, no investment ever from Berkshire. Starbucks, a retail player, no investment ever from Berkshire. Amazon didn't catch a, an investment from Berkshire until 2009. And even that was coming from Todd and Ted. We have a comment here from Max on the side about Amazon. I'm sorry, about Apple. That didn't happen until 2016, You know, which, which Buffett has had kind of these pitches right down the middle time and time again. And yet he decides to put their money into an $11 billion into IBM in 2011. That's a stock that's gone down 30% over the last decade. Uh, other than the dividends, you know, you've seen certainly a, a loss as a shareholder in a stake like that. And so my question is, does this value investing, I want to make sure of a good return, apply to technology investing, which has really been where all of the best gains from the market. I mean, look at the top 10 companies in the S&P right now. They're all tech companies. They're not the GEs. They're not the JP Morgans. They're not the IBMs anymore. The companies that are collecting that data and using it as a competitive advantage is, is I, in my opinion, where big money should be going into. Um, I, I question if Buffett is, is taking advantage of that. And Simon, you're not suggesting he invested like some crazy startup you've never heard of. Like buying Starbucks now makes a lot more sense to me than buying Verizon now. Like there's just much more clear upside to what Starbucks is doing. And look, I don't think either one of them are, are sexy plays, but like if they'd come out and bought Costco instead of Chevron, I would feel a lot better about this. Uh, ZL asks, do you think uh, T-Mobile is a better long-term stock than Verizon? Uh, I do, yeah. I think T-Mobile's an innovator. I think their television product is excellent. They've done nothing to market it. I think their banking product has a lot of potential. They have a very, very loyal customer base because, hey, here's a trick. They don't treat you terribly. They actually like that you're there. They're, they're happy for you to be a customer. So when I had the opportunity to switch from, from Sling, which is... Uh, you know, a, a, a nice enough company, but they don't, you know, particularly care. They have pretty bad customer service to switch my alternate TV subscription to T-Mobile, which I know if there's a problem, they're going to bend over backwards to fix it. Uh, and they, you know, they've made real steps at fixing customer service by having like a dedicated team that you call up. And if you've already logged your issue, you don't have to repeat it 50 times. Like, yeah, I do like T-Mobile over Verizon, but it's probably not a place I would put my money. It's probably a very steady stock but they would need some other part of their business to take off. And as, as much as I like their TV product, it's going to be a couple million subscribers, best case scenario. It is not going to be a big one. Uh, Max, are you, what, are you, what are we missing here? Like, sh should I be putting my money into Berkshire because it has been you know, generating a lot of cash, but it, it's been pretty much a dead stock for a long time? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the criticisms are fair, but the only thing I might add is that, uh, you know, our friend, well, he's not our friend, but our colleague, uh, Matt Cochran, recently shared a, uh, a video from uh, Howard Marks and Joel Greenblatt. And it was a great hour-long conversation. And, uh, you know, one of the things they said was investing's about buying things well, not about buying good things. So that's really kind of fits what Buffett does, right? He's looking at, if I invest this dollar, what's this dollar going to be worth later? So from that perspective, you could see, all right, Chevron's beaten down, right, from the pandemic. Um, obviously, oil consumption's down because of the pandemic. It's going to bounce back somewhat. I don't know if it's going to go back to what it was, you know, pre-pandemic levels. Um, but still, I, again, I, you know, if you're going to stay in energy, why not double down on an electric utility in the U.S., right? Um, they already have exposure there, but that's where energy's going. So why not, uh, why not buy something there instead of Chevron? So uh, mostly in agreement with you guys. 
and they sold all of their airline stakes uh, and then they buy an oil company and airlines use an awful lot of oil. Um, I still think it's a mistake that they didn't just buy Southwest outright, an incredibly well-run company. Uh, they're going to be the one airline that has a good business going forward. They've always been great about cash, uh, but they sold out completely. Simon, I'll give you the last word here. Uh, and if you want to take, uh, there's a comment from Phantom Gringo. If you wanted to re read that one after, we can do that as well. But will Berkshire Hathaway beat the S&P 500? I know 7investing is beating the S&P 500 by quite a bit, uh, but is Berkshire Hathaway going to be a smart place to put your money going forward? I, I think it's going to be challenging, uh, Dan. Just one from the, the law of large numbers, right? Buffett can't go out and invest in $2 billion market cap companies like we can <laughs> with seven investing. I mean, it's not going to move the needle for when he's sitting on $150 billion of cash. He's got to go after the largest companies, which are kind of by definition, the S&P 500, right? The 500 largest companies by market cap. Um, and then on top of that, you know, coupling that with kind of the hesitance to technology companies, the, the Alphabets and the Amazons, I I personally think it's it's going to be a stretch to see Berkshire outperform the S&P uh, unless Todd and Ted really change the strategy overall. We're going to see some more buybacks from, from Berkshire. We know that that's on the table and we're going to see them kind of dabble um, into, into some new into some new types of companies, I think, because because uh, Todd Combs and Ted Wish are going to slowly change the strategy of, of the investment. But um I don't know. I think it's a stretch for me. I don't see it happening personally, Dan. Yeah, I feel like the best is not yet to come. Uh, probably an okay place to park some money defensively, but really not uh, an investment I'd be looking to make. So Phantom Gringo asks, uh, why didn't they invest in PayPal? And I, I think we could play a lot of games with this. Why didn't they buy lots of things? And in some ways, look, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Why didn't I invest in PayPal? I think that's that's a pretty good question. So I'm not really going to question what they didn't buy because we don't know why we don't we don't know. But I I do would like to see some more aggressiveness. Buying Netflix now would still be smart. Uh, you know, putting some more money into Disney would not be a terrible idea. Like there are definitely some plays they could make. But uh, Simon, we're going to switch to what we're watching in a second. Uh, but first, thank you to my mom who was watching the show and uh, and just commented. Uh, always <laughs> nice to see to see family watching. Uh, but Simon. We're in the middle of the month here. And on Friday, we have an incredibly busy day. We are doing something that is absolutely awesome for our members and our new members. So what to people who join 7investing, in addition to, of course, our great picks, what are the special things that we're giving them uh, on this Friday, which we do every month? Oh, yeah. Thanks for, for mentioning this, Dan, because we, we have our subscriber call on this Friday. And, uh, you know, that, that's kind of a vague term, but it's basically our interaction with people that are subscribers to the service. They, if you have questions about our previous recommendations, you saw one of Dan and Max's picks and you said, hey, I really want to ask them something about this. I really am, am interested, but there's one question I have. This is the chance to do that, right? We're going to actually openly talk about all of our or any of our previous recommendations. Uh, we do kind of have a, a little bit of a format where we talk about the current month's picks first, and then we each provide an update on at least one company to get the conversation rolling. But then it's kind of a real fun interactive live stream that we really enjoy. Uh, we, we do this because we think that this differentiates Seven Investing to, to show the conviction we have in our ideas. You know, we're not just borrowing ideas and putting them into a report and then disappearing. I mean, you can actually interact with us in real time. It's a live show uh, and, and ask us questions and, and we'll answer those. And, and we have a lot of fun with it too. Um, so our subscriber call is this Friday morning. It's also our new customer welcome call, where if you're new to 7investing and kind of want to 
you know, learn a little bit more about how the site is organized and the publishing schedule goes, it's a great time to introduce you to that as well. And that's one of my favorite things about what we do because we're kind of an intimate service. Now, a lot of questions people ask us, we answer on the show or we try to answer in a place where it helps the most people possible. But sometimes we get someone, like someone asked us this morning some questions about Roku. And one of the questions was, do we expect them, you know, there's some rumors they're gonna create content. And I just got to answer back and be like, dear God, I hope not. Like the last thing I want is, and, and I don't know if they'll create good content or bad, but the space is so crowded being able to move the needle with original content is really, really difficult. So I don't wanna see, I don't wanna see Apple doing that either. I don't wanna see Amazon doing it, even though I love some of the shows on Amazon Prime. So the fact that like someone asked us something that just like resonated and we immediately answer, that is kind of what our members get. We don't always do it privately, but we, we do do it publicly here on the show. So if you want to become a member, if you want to attend the new subscriber call or the members call on Friday, that is seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. If you join uh, and want to go to those calls, just make sure you shoot us a note. I'm not sure if you automatically get the invite if you join this late in the month. Uh, so if you want to go to Friday's call, oh, you will. So never mind. We are one step ahead of the game. Let's seg here to what we're watching. So Max, every time I feel like we're in the clear on stuff, I see something new terrible happen. This morning, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm going, I'm getting my second vaccine shot, I'm volunteering tomorrow, and I'm like, oh, I can see my mother, I can see my aunts and uncles in a few weeks, like everything might be a little bit more normal, and I see the headline, Ebola cases are on the rise. It feels like anytime something good is happening, that there's some bad news. So you shared with us, uh, you know, to be the, the Debbie Downer of the bunch here, is there a greater risk of cancer with gene therapy than we thought? So I was going to get gene therapy to get super strength. Now it doesn't seem like a great idea. Max, what's the story? What's going on here? Yeah, so it's a, a little too early to, to draw conclusions, I would say. So, you know, don't cancel your super strength appointment just yet, Dan. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the other day we saw Bluebird Bio. It's a company that's working on gene therapies and has been for a while. Um, had to halt clinical trials for its gene therapy in sickle cell disease. Uh, it also stopped sales of its only approved product, which is, I think, in Europe right now, uh, for beta thalassemia. And they did this because a patient who was treated five years ago with one of the company's gene therapies developed acute myeloid leukemia, which is AML. It's a type of blood cancer. Uh, so this is something that didn't show up in clinical trials or earlier studies. It took five years you know, to see this, this clinical outcome. Uh, so this is really something that the, everyone's watching. Obviously, the FDA is concerned, um, but this might be kind of inherent to some of the ways that gene therapies work. Max, is this necessarily related? Like, in theory, I could have a gene therapy and then break my leg five years later. That's not necessarily, you know, cause and effect. Right. So um, it's still too early to say, but some we saw, so it was AML was in one patient. Another patient developed uh, certain types of uh, blood syndromes that are often diagnosed in your late 70s, or that's like the average age. So to see this in, in younger patients is concerning. Uh, and this has always actually been a concern for gene therapy. So if you go back to the early 2000s, the FDA halted clinical trials in all gene therapies uh, after certain patients, you know, one patient died in 1999 uh, out of a University of Pennsylvania study. There was a case in France where an infant died uh, in 2003. Uh, so this has kind of always been this uh, lurking, the boogeyman in, in gene therapy, right? And it has to do with how gene therapy works. So, you know, we take uh, viral vectors, and we, we use that to deliver a gene into the human genome. You're fixing some disease, you're 
giving them a gene that, that they don't have or, or replacing something. Uh, so it, in the early 2000s, we used retroviruses. And then we kind of had to, we found out there were problems with that, right? Um, that could cause cancerous genes to turn on and, and give rise to cancerous cells in the human body. It's not that it really causes cancer per se, uh, but it activates cancerous genes. So we engineered our way around that problem. We found different virus vectors to use, but now with AAVs or lengthy viral vectors, we're starting to see the same thing. So uh, this might be an inherent problem with certain types of gene therapies, and it depends on what, what cells you're targeting, right? Uh, this isn't blood cells, blood stem cells that we're, we're working on. So maybe you don't see the same thing in the liver or in muscle tissues, uh, but it is a concern. Max, is this one of those cases where sometimes the risk is going to be worth it? If you have a deadly disease that could be fixed by gene therapy, is it worth risking something else bad happening down the road? Or are we going to have to like sort of grade it out that way? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. There's going to be some case-by-case case, uh, basis here, right? Some of these uh, diseases that are being targeted with genetic medicines, uh, you know, they are fatal. So you do have to kind of do the risk-reward uh, calculus Um so yeah, uh, and we can treat cancer. These patients didn't necessarily die yet. Um, so maybe we can still treat their cancer and now maybe they don't have sickle cell or they have to get less blood transfusions. Uh, but I would add, you know, this is also concerning given some of the euphoria right now for CRISPR gene editing. Uh, now that works differently than gene therapy, but we still use AAVs, adeno-associated viral vectors to deliver, um, you know, most uh, uh, CRISPR gene editing payloads. Uh, and there were concerns a few years ago where, you know, scientists said, hey, look, this can activate cancerous cells if we use CRISPR gene editing. Uh, so to me, it seems like, you know, and if you talk to scientists, it's interesting, right? You have like this, um, this perception among the markets, among investors, oh, you have to own CRISPR stocks, right? These are the future. And then if you talk to scientists, a number that I've talked to are, are more grounded, right? They're, they're rightfully optimistic, right? Hey, look, we can maybe fix some of these genes that eventually lead to diseases, but also they're, they're, they're saying, hey, we might have rushed this into clinical trials. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. What if five years from now, patients treated with CRISPR gene editing, you know, develop cancer or something else goes wrong, right? So to me, it makes sense that we might look back and say, hey, these first generation CRISPR tools, man, that was dumb. Why are we cutting both strands of DNA, right? Uh, that seems like a really bad idea right now. And I, I, you know, five years from now, I think we might look back and have that be the, the rightful conclusion. So... Um, maybe just a, a reminder to investors to, you know, tread carefully and, and remember that th this might not be the revolution you think it is. It's, it's going to take some time uh, to show the clinical results and that, that it's safe and effective. Max, the timeline on stocks in this space was always, you know, a few years out. Uh, is this going to make the FDA more cautious? Does this uh, change your investing horizon here? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, there's that's another narrative, right? We see like, oh, well, we developed uh, coronavirus vaccines and, you know, however many months this is innovation's great. We're booming. It's a great innovative time. And, and that narrative is not really uh, necessarily true. I think the FDA has increased scrutiny of a lot of these new technologies. We've seen some of the first cell therapies that have gone up for uh, FDA approval. You know, the FDA has come down and said, hey, you show us some more data, you know, and it's delayed the approval of some of these. So, I think the FDA is definitely going to tread more carefully with genetic medicines, definitely with gene therapies. Uh, and this is huge because there's hundreds of clinical trials using gene therapy that are underway. Uh, so this really could cause ripple effects in all genetic medicines that, that use these delivery technologies. So, yes, I think uh, the FDA is going to uh, you know, be much more scrutinous of, uh, of some of these innovative uh, technologies. 
to give everyone a peek under the hood, uh, I'm not this smart. I'm actually reading questions that Max asked himself, and it's much more efficient to have me ask them than to have him just like hold up a question card. Gregory Sparrow, we appreciate the comments. Anyone wants to get in some questions and comments, uh, we will have a little bit of time uh, after Simon's What We're Watching. Uh, Simon, you want to change things up totally. You want to talk about uh, SoFi, which is a, a really, really interesting company that people might know from the ads. They might not know... Uh, in practice. Yeah, and so shift to shifting gears entirely here for what Max was talking about delivery mechanisms for gene editing to social finance, which is <laughs> basically a company that, that's trying to consolidate your loans into one central platform. What that means is most people in America have got loans from several different financial institutions, right? You're probably working with one bank that you get a student loan from. You might have a different bank you're using for your mortgage. Maybe you have a different bank that you're using for a business loan. And the idea is that this is incredibly inefficient to try to have to go back and forth with those banks. They've got acquisition costs of trying to get you on board and their marketing. You've got your time commitment of finding the, the bank, vetting the different programs, and then comparing the rates that everybody's offering. And so SoFi's idea is to consolidate all of those from different banking institutions all into a centralized platform that would serve you your entire life. And so they started this with student loans. They originally went after millennials and said, hey, we're going to give you a much better, more competitive rate on the student loan that you currently have. And then by the way, do you remember how we helped you with that student loan? Are you ready for a mortgage? Are you ready for a business loan? Further and further down the line. So the idea is the acquisition cost comes up front for millennials, but the long-term lifetime value of a customer fully justifies that if they can get everyone onto a singular platform. Simon, are they also like, like we talked a little bit about how I used Lemonade to get life insurance the other day. And I was so stunned by how easy the process is because they have this sort of like lifelong relationship. Do they make things like getting a mortgage easier? Like getting a mortgage is ridiculously difficult for those of us who have a history as a, as a contractor, as self-employed people, uh, the amount of paperwork you need to generate. And I don't want to give anyone a, a tip, but what you tell the IRS and what actually happened is not always the same picture. So, <laughs> you know, you, you're presenting the IRS, the worst case scenario and your mortgage company, the best case scenario, all within the bounds of the law. Uh, is SoFi sort of fixing some of that because they really will know who you are? Yes, there's a lot of data advantage that they have from this, and they want to have a more consolidated offering that is extremely efficient. So all of those are important. You mentioned also the, the, the paper, the regulations, you know, everything you have to write. I mean, how long does it take to go in and sign all the paperwork for a mortgage, right? A long time. Same thing with almost any loan that you, you generate throughout your life. If you can get that digital, which most millennials are, are, are very digital, very tech savvy, except for Max Chatsko, but for the most of part, they actually are very tech savvy. Um, all of this is, is kind of working in their favor. And they've now got a million customers and more than $50 billion worth of loans. So it's working right now. Um, it's still an early idea for me because, and I'm not fully convinced that, uh, that this is the right company, but this is a field that kind of is uh, starting to, to generate some buzz, right? A digital banking, if you want to think about it in that way of, of what you would consider SoFi's market here is still less than $10 billion in America total addressable market. And this is a company that's valued at almost $9 billion after the SPAC that it just went, uh, came public in January. So today, it, it's almost its market cap is almost its entire addressable market. But then you also look at the bigger picture of how many inefficiencies there are in the financial services industry that we've created here in America, how much paperwork there is, how many different institutions there are, how inefficient it is to get a new customer to sign up for something. 
if you can consolidate all of that, this could easily be a market that's several orders of magnitude, meaning hundreds of billions of dollars of an addressable market, not too many years in the future. It's also very bad news for the company that makes those little sign here stickers. Like when I got my first mortgage, <laughs> it was about a stack of paper this high and a hundred little tabs. And it took two or three hours to go through all the paperwork. DocuSign and companies like that have made it a little bit easier, but it is still a broken process. So consolidating it. Simon, as we close out on SoFi here, talk about uh, Galileo. They, they purchased, what does Galileo do? What does that change for this sort of opportunity SoFi has? So this is kind of the processor on the acquiring side of this. So like you've got the bank side and you've got the merchant side. And we saw everybody go after the merchant side, right? The PayPal's of the world. Everybody was trying to be the processor of payments that were paying those merchants. Now we're kind of talking about the other side of this. We need to build out the APIs for the banks and the financial institutions that are serving those people that want to take loans out or whatever it is. And, and so we're kind of starting to see this ecosystem building out. There was an acquisition that they made of Galileo not too long ago that's kind of, I think, put them as the innovator in, in building out kind of the piping of this digital financial institution infrastructure that we're trying to create. So it's one that I have, an, 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 I'm keeping my eye on. I mean, their CEO was, uh, was COO of Twitter before. So he knows a lot about acquisition costs and how companies can, can market at the, at the lowest possible rates and then keep those customers over time. I, I think that SoFi is an interesting company. I'm not completely bought in on the valuation yet, but if the, if the industry is indeed heading this direction in a more efficient digital way of making loans, they're in a great position. And, and let's point out their CEO was COO of Twitter. We wouldn't COO, want to tag, yeah, apologies. We, yep. <laughs> we wouldn't want to tag him with having been CEO of Twitter because that's so, sorry, Jack. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that is generally well, I'm thinking Dick Costolo, like like there is generally a long history of that being someone who's not very good at their job. Uh, apologies to Jack who who might be, but uh, he seems to be better with Square. We're going to take one more question that came in via Twitter, and then we are going to go in the home stretch. We're going to play Change my mind, Viacom CBS. I recorded this earlier with Alan Sokoloff uh, from Cruising Altitude, one of our uh, extended family. Let's call it a, an affiliate of Seven Investing. And I apologize to whoever asked us this question on Twitter because I didn't cut and paste his name. I see his picture, but I didn't cut and paste his name. Hi, guys. Seven Investing subscriber here. Can you please discuss, discuss stock-based compensation pros and cons during one of your live programs? Feels like a lot of investors neglect the share dilution that happened due to stock-based uh, to stock-based compensation when doing valuation. It's generally not something that bothers me. I'm not overly concerned about it, but Simon, why don't you give a, a deeper, much more thoughtful dive than I could give here? Yep, and I'm not completely sure, Dan, but I think this might've come from Sandeep, one of our subscribers, if that is, if I, thank you, Sandeep, for the call. Okay, is, perfect, yeah, I thought correct. so. Perfect, yeah, okay, so it's a great question because a lot of tech companies are paying people that are employees of those businesses in stock rather than in just money in, in term and salary. Right, especially in San Francisco, you're in one of these high buzzing, you know, shooting through the moon tech companies. You want to get paid in stock because that might be worth 10 or 100 times your money in a couple of years versus just taking it in cash up front. And so we see a lot of tech companies that are uh, paying maybe at 15, 20 percent of revenue in stock based compensation. If you're a railroad or a retailer, that's unheard of. But if you're a tech company that is going to continue to dilute, they're going to issue more stock-based compensation, but they can afford that because the market capitalization continues to go up. It's a great strategy. You're not paying uh, the limited cash you have on hand out of the bank. You're paying it in, in terms of future, uh, future value to your employees. And so I think that the thing is to answer the question of, of you know, when do you get concerned about this, uh, you really need to think about that both ways. Because if you have a company that's executing really well and the market is rewarding that execution with a higher and higher market capitalization, 
then the larger denominator of more shares outstanding is not a concern. It goes the other way too, though. If there's flaws in execution, the company's market cap falls significantly. Uh, now you really get hit because there's more shares out there to split the pie up with. And Max, this is pretty common in biotech, I would assume as well. I see this as a positive because doesn't it give the people who work there incentive to make the company go well? Uh, that stock's only worth something if the value goes up significantly. Max, I'll give you the last word here. Yeah, all I would add is um, yeah, I think a lot of investors do kind of neglect it as an expense, right? We kind of like cast it aside and, and forget about that little part there. But, you know, if stock-based compensation wasn't a thing, you would have to reward your employees with cash, as Simon said, like a railroad or a retailer. Um, so it is an expense. You, you can't necessarily just exclude it. But it, you also have to acknowledge that has it really impacted, you know, the returns of some of these tech companies? Uh, maybe on a case-by-case -case basis, but if they're executing and they're successful, uh, it really doesn't matter. And, you know, for tech companies, the cost of capital is usually lower anyway, right? It's They're moving around ones and zeros for the most part. So, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's just the, the new economy. It doesn't really, it hasn't affected a lot of returns. It's also worth noting that on some of the fastest growing tech companies, it's why they'll often report non-GAAP numbers. Because when you report the correct financial numbers, you'll show a loss because it includes stock-based compensation. But here's the reality, that's not actual cash off your books. So you will see that sort of second set of reporting is, hey, from a cash flow basis, we are actually generating more cash than we're spending, which is a good thing. I know we want to see all these companies reinvest and keep, but it does feel nice when a company you own has gone to cash flow positive. Simon. It, it and on that note too, Dan, yeah, I mean, like, I'm glad you mentioned cash flow because if you really want to be more quantitative about this, if you should be concerned about stock-based compensation, look at the per share metrics, specifically look at cash flow per share that the business is generating, right? Even if per, even if the number of shares is increasing because you're, you're issuing more shares as stock-based compensation, if you're getting the bang for your buck from that, you're growing the business, you're generating cash flow at a faster rate than you're diluting your shareholders. That's not something that's particularly concerning. With that, I'm going to let Simon and Max go back. Uh, Max, have another cup of bone broth or hot root beer or wherever it is you're drinking there. Uh, Simon, go back to being the CEO of the company. But for all of you watching, we are going to cut now live in a few seconds to an interview I did with Alan Sokloff, where I am not, not a fan of Viacom CBS. I think it's fair to say that. I think their content is pretty terrible. Uh, kind of, I call it the fifth rate streaming service. Not, not a fan. And he tries to change my mind. It's going to take about seven seconds for Sam to bring up the video. So I'm going to stop talking. Sam Bailey, hit the video. Welcome back to 7investing now, or just welcome to this, because this is going to be two things. This is going to be a standalone show. It's also going to air at the end of an episode of 7investing now. So if you're just joining me, I am Dan Klein, and I'm joined today by Alan Sokoloff. He is a new member of our affiliate network. We'll explain what that is in a bit, but we've been going back and forth good-naturedly on Twitter for a while, and here's the premise of it. He is a fan of CBS Viacom. I am not. That's really dumbing it down because I don't hate the company. It's not one. It's just one where I feel that there are better opportunities. So we're going to play a game I call change my mind. I'm going to say why I don't like the company. He is going to tell me why I am wrong. I always end up changing my mind in the short term, but long term, <laughs> generally not. But Alan, before we get to this, first of all, welcome to the show. And second of all, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about what you do and how you came into our orbit? For sure. Um, so first of all, I'm a junior at the University of Maryland studying finance, so still a student, uh, still learning. 
And um, I recently started a venture called Cruising Altitude that is a investment newsletter focused on educating the next generation of long-term investors. As you guys know at Seven Investing and everyone watching this knows, the market is quickly becoming a crazy place for um, especially Gen Zers and millennials that are getting introduced to the stock market in a really weird way. Um, so what we are trying to do is to motivate Gen Zers specifically to take a long-term view in investing and to buy stocks and hold them for a long, long time. It's admirable work and it's really tricky because everyone sees what's going on in the market right now and they look, oh my God, I'll buy this, I'll sell tomorrow, when here's the reality. The stock market's actually boring. You buy good companies and you hold them forever. And I, I wish I was 20, because if I was 20, I would have a 50 year investing horizon. I could buy fairly conservative companies and let them build up. I didn't really start seriously investing until I was 40, maybe 41. So I was, I'm lucky I had some 401ks and some retirement investment, but the younger you are, so the work Alan is doing is something we really support. And we do that through our affiliate program. What does that mean? People who are in our sphere, people who we interact with, people who we know, not just anybody, uh, we give them a code. And if people join 7investing, which costs uh, $17 a month or $170 a year, they get a piece of that initial subscription. They also get ongoing money as long as that person becomes a member. This is a major part of our business because we're looking for people that want this mindset. If you're, if you're looking at what Alan is doing, uh, you are already sort of in the same mindset as what we're doing at Seven Investing. Let's get started. We're going to play Change My Mind. So you saw a, a ton. Viacom CBS. I always get the order wrong. Viacom CBS advertised. They had the Super Bowl and they gave up roughly fifty million dollars. I'm going to guess that is the number in revenue by running endless, terrible commercials for Paramount Plus. So here is my angle. Paramount Plus is just CBS All Access. CBS All Access had nothing. And when you're running commercials where your big celebrities are Star Trek, so like the eighth most popular Star Wars show is gonna be 10 times more popular than a new <laughs> Star Trek movie. The Mandalorian is gonna be a thousand times more popular. Star Trek is a mild draw, but okay, it's a name property. Then they had great tough to get shows like Beavis and Butthead. Those guys were super busy, really, really tough to get them. So I get it, SpongeBob, niche appeals to kids. You know what else doesn't matter with SpongeBob? New content, because kids age out of it, unless they're stoners. So kids age out of it. There's hundreds of episodes of SpongeBob that they could watch. They also got Dora the Explorer. Again, she's very, very busy exploring, tough, tough to come by. And here was the big reveal, Snooky from the Jersey Shore. This yeah, is not- and Both. who else? Oh. DJ Allen. <laughs> but who's not doing anything on the platform. He was just in the commercial. <laughs> Basically, they're saying we're competing with Netflix, which just throws a billion shows against the wall to see what stick and spends too much money, in my opinion. Yeah. And more importantly, Disney, which owns Marvel, Pixar, Disney Classic Animation, and Lucasfilm, and produces nothing but hits. That is my core argument against Paramount+. Plus. Alan Sokoloff, changed my mind. Let's get it. So first of all, um, I think you make fantastic points. And those are points I think about when I um, analyze uh, my bullish thesis with Viacom CBS. And you were saying right when we were getting started that um, you wish you had an investment um, 
if you were just getting started as a 20 year old now you'd be investing for 50 so that's the perspective that i have and i see an opportunity that is much bigger than paramount plus i'll talk about paramount plus in a moment but i see a company with some of the greatest ip in the history of entertainment including mission impossible the godfather really quality stuff star trek a lot of people like it you might not but a lot of i know i i, I do i do <laughs> like it but a new Star Trek movie is a $400 million release. A, a new Star Wars movie, if done well, is a $2 billion release. And I, I analyzed all the franchises once uh, for films and the only franchise that they had that was a viable long-term film franchise was Mission Impossible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's important to realize that Viacom, see, everyone thinks Viacom and CBS and there's a lot of history and gunk with that, right? And part of my benefit of being a younger investor I don't remember any of that. I was watching sports when all of that was happening, you know? And um, and I, I really analyze this with a fresh set of eyes. And what I see is a company with strong management, with Bob Backage, that is really looking to accelerate and become um, one of the new streaming players in the entertainment industry. And they're taking a really fascinating approach to this. They are um, promoting Showtime OTT that they are keeping as a standalone service service with fantastic content like shameless um the shy i think it's called um and and a lot of goods uh, homeland just wrapped up there they're they're doing very well there and then um with pluto tv right which i'm sure we'll get to also with 30 million um current uh, maus currently growing um like a rocket ship as baggage says and then paramount plus which is going to be um the number one service um, that has live sports, breaking news, and a mountain of entertainment, as they say. So it's important to realize that they are really um, becoming, they're new. If you if you view it with a fresh set of eyes, this isn't the old the legacy Viacom CBS. So I love Bob Backish. I think he's a good leader. I worry yeah. about the fact that Sherry Redstone actually controls the company. And she the Redstone family has a reputation for doing outlandish things. I don't know if that died with Sumner, but they've chased away a lot of good executives. They also ignored some really bad content, uh, some conduct from some executives, won't, won't rehash those stories. So that scares me, but it's, it's not a major detractor. We'll talk about Pluto TV at some point, but so live sports. If I want live sports, I can subscribe to Hulu Live or YouTube TV or Sling, or I hate to say it Fubo, because <laughs> have roughly the same package of live sports. If I get CBS All Access, here's what I get. I get whatever CBS has the rights to. So if I'm an NFL fan, it is not likely I'm gonna be like, you know what I wanna watch? Just AFC games. I only wanna watch AFC games. I don't wanna watch Sunday night football. I don't wanna watch Monday night football. I don't care that much about the playoffs. So to me, that angle is overrated because if I like sports, that isn't going to be a game changer. If you said, well, it's a way to get the national nightly news uh, and you probably don't need all three of the national nightly news, that's something. Um, but I look at this as very much an add-on service. But what stops me from then going, well, I would also need Peacock. I would also need whatever ABC calls its service, which, you know, which doesn't really exist because they're part of Disney. Yeah. Um, and I feel like your best bet is just sling TV for 35 bucks. Like, like that makes a lot more sense. And you mentioned Showtime earlier. 
all of those shows you mentioned ended. <laughs> so Shameless is done this season. Homeland is done. And I'm not saying they won't create some good content, but I do think they fall into the HBO trap where they're trying so hard to be a prestige content maker that right now, what exactly are you subscribing to HBO for? I subscribe because I watched last week tonight, which I know I could just watch on YouTube, but I'm too old to watch things on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, th that part... I really feel like you know the core thing is their cable network. That's the best part. And you can argue some of their properties as, as being interesting, but I think the Paramount network itself is a real network. Quick, name three shows that air on the Paramount network. Right. Um, I'm not gonna answer that. Um, what I am gonna do is touch on some of the earlier points you did make, because I think there's a lot there. I view Sherry Redstone's holding in um, in Viacom CBS as a real asset. I think she ho uh, holds about 80% of the flow one, one way. Through, through national amusements to make it even for more sure. complicated. For sure. That's powerful. You think that's incentive, you know, like for, for her to turn the company around. She, she is very much included under the legacy of her father right now. I really think she's motivated to leave her mark, the Sherry Redstone mark on the media industry. So that's one thing that I actually view as an asset. And um, in regards to, um, like you were saying on Showtime, all those shows are ending, right? Viacom CBS is quickly doing what everyone else is doing, starting to do prequels, right? The perfect example of that is Yellowstone, a really powerful um, series that they've released that they're now doing the prequel for that will be an original on Paramount+. Plus. And it's important to recognize that um, the Super Bowl was just week three of a 14-week promotional um, promotional uh, campaign to uh, for Paramount Plus. They were focused there on saying the old content that we have. And I think on February 24th, Viacom CBS's investors, Investor Day, you're going to see a lot of the new original content that they have planned, similar to Disney's um, Investor Day a few months back. And um, just, I think I can rattle off about 10 shows that will be originals on Paramount Plus, but I'll just name a few. There's going to be an iCarly reboot. There's going to be a behind the scenes of The Godfather. There's going to be a Criminal Minds, um, uh, um, what's it, what's it called? Documentaries, a real life documentary. Oh, a documentary of a show only old people watch. But, <laughs> but guess what? When you have, and then there's Sponge on the Run, Camp Coral. When you actually helped me there. So you got old people TV shows, you got young, you got everything in between. And, and the potential is huge. Why? Because right now there's only 17.9 million paid subscribers, about 8 million for CBS All Access and 8.5 million for um, Showtime. They're just getting started. And um, the potential is huge. Yeah. So, so what's your ceiling? So if I look at Disney Plus, I will, I will argue 300 million. That's where they, they will get to. If I look at CBS All Access, which is inherently an American product. So obviously there's money to be made in licensing some of these content, you know, the SpongeBob movie can be licensed everywhere. And that's a good model. I look at CBS All Access and say it could get to 30 million people. And that might be the ceiling. That to me, isn't that exciting. We'll talk about Pluto TV, because that could be exciting. But do you, do you have a higher ceiling on this? There, there's about 85 million cable homes in the US right now. And maybe it's hard to know, like, uh, probably almost as many that are cord cutters, but that's a really squishy number. You say 30 million or 300 million? Because so I'm, I, I I'm said, closer to 300 million. 
I'd say Disney, Disney, CBS All Access can't get to 300 million. There aren't 300 million Americans. So, well, there are. There are 360. There are 360 million Americans, but there aren't that many American households. I don't see a global reach for a product based around U.S. television. If you tell me 70, 80 million, that's basically close to peak cable. Peak cable was like 105 or something like that. We're at about 85 now. Gee, that that's a lot. That, that that's a lot of faith you got there. So Paramount Plus has already launched in the Nordics, I'm pretty sure. Um, so they are, and they also have plans to launch in um, other English-speaking countries um, relatively soon. Uh, so they are not limiting themselves. They are really looking to become an international brand. And I don't think people are understanding that. And um, they already have huge distribution networks um, in all these countries. And you can see that specifically with the success of Pluto TV. So I think it's important to realize um, that if you make content is king, right? As Sumner Redstone said. So if you make fantastic content, people will watch it. Some of my favorite shows on Netflix right now are in different languages. And I think we are really entering a new age of media. Um, and, and 300 million is a huge number. And, and it's important to recognize they don't need Paramount Plus to be a huge success for this to be a valuable investment. They're trading at $36 billion um, as the market cap, and they're doing in the mid-20s in revenue, making $3 billion in net income a year. And it's important to realize that this is a classical value play. We don't need Paramount Plus to be a grand slam. I think it can be, but we don't need that. So let's talk about content, because there's a little bit of content fatigue. Now, I'm a Disney Plus subscriber. I'm a Netflix subscriber more because my wife and son use it than I use it. I haven't found it all that appealing. I have Amazon Prime, but not, I watch the boys, but that's not why I get Amazon Prime. They could get rid of Amazon Video. I'm still gonna have Amazon Prime. <laughs> um, I am a Peacock subscriber because for the moment I have Comcast and I get it for free. I am an HBO subscriber because I like the, the DC Comics content. And I probably have like three others. I am so far behind on shows I want to watch that realistically, and, and my wife and I have different tastes. So my window tends to be when I'm traveling and there's not a lot of traveling right now. And when she goes to bed, I have a hard time keeping up with the one show I'm regularly watching on time, which is WandaVision on Disney Plus. I'm not sure, we, got, we just got Discovery Plus because I like Restaurant Impossible. I don't I even think- Restaurant Impossible. I don't even think I've logged in. And that has like hundreds of shows. Now my problem with Discovery Plus, which we're gonna talk about uh, on 7 Investing now soon, is that you don't get the linear feed and nobody's just like, I wanna watch Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. They just want it to be on. They just want Chopped in the background. Nobody right. seeks those shows out. So I feel like that's a fatal flaw. That's probably a cable rights issue. But I look at it and I say, there's nothing in the lineup for Paramount Plus. Like, like the one thing in the background of, uh, of NBC Peacock is they're doing a Battlestar Galactica reboot. And I love Battlestar Galactica. I haven't seen that show that makes me go, I need to have this. I think that's a pretty big problem. Like Yellowstone's not a big hit. It's a niche hit. Look, I also love Bar Rescue, which is a Paramount Plus property. Uh, but I don't know that I'm buying a network to get Paramount Plus. And I still have cable because my complex gives it to me. Yeah, I think um, to answer that question, let's wait till February 24th. Let's circle that date on our calendar. Um, where, I'm, I'm, looking yeah. for, I'm looking forward to Godfather Baby 
and, uh, <laughs> and and all the other uh, Mission Impossible kids or like however they, they prequel these things. I, I'm teasing and I stepped on you, so I apologize for that. You're good. Um, and, and I think I want to hammer home the um, value play that is Viacom CBS. They don't need Paramount Plus to be a grand slam. They are trading at 1.1 times sales. And um, what I do want to add, and you mentioned this a little bit, cord cutting, right? When you actually look at the numbers, when you look under the hood of what is happening, Viacom CBS is growing their affiliate revenue for the past three quarters, it's been growing. I think 1%, 2%, 10%. The affiliate revenue should be where the um, cord cutting, um, where the cord cutting uh, victim is. And it's just not there. Why? Because they are fantastic at signing deals with connected TV partners like YouTube TV, Sling, and Dish. And, and if that six, if that three, four billion a quarter is not going anywhere, why is this company trading at 1.1 billion, 1.1 times sales with a two and a half percent dividend? There's just a, a, a mismatch there. So I sort of agree with that, that. Okay, we're getting somewhere. I, 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 well, I think we've had peak cord cutting. Um, the reality is a lot of people are coming around to wait a minute. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just pay for one thing where I get all these channels instead of having all these individual things? Oh, wait a minute, that's cable. Um, right. So, I do think like we're seeing in the cord cutting world, a move of people from full price subscriptions with your Comcast and your Xfinities to skinny bundles. And those skinny bundles are generally going to include CBS. Uh, and when it's in markets where it's legal, it's always tricky. It depends where you live. They are probably going to include MTV, Comedy Central and Nickelodeon. So I don't think they're gonna see big law. I think they're gonna see some decline because there are absolutely people that say I get everything I want from Netflix or just a couple of things. But I, I don't think you're going to see 10, 20, 30% drops quickly in the cable business. I think we might have seen the, the worst of it. And we're, I think we're starting to learn that there's some benefit in having a package. I, I, I have Sling TV. Oh, no, I don't have Sling TV. I got rid of Sling TV. I now have the T-Mobile streaming television, which isn't on Roku. So I can't actually use it. But hopefully they will correct that soon. We have a second house, and that's how we watch TV at that house. We'll figure that one out. But let's talk about Pluto. Yeah. So, we're working on getting all of our content on things like Pluto. Uh, and I say things like, because the Roku channel is just like Pluto. The Twitter, uh, not Twitter, the TiVo channel is just like Pluto. So here's what Pluto is largely. It is every free thing that's out there. Some of that is good. So some of that might be professional content, uh, like a channel like Bloomberg, which doesn't have great cable distribution. So they have the rights to it. So it's on all those free platforms. It could be good content you don't know about, like Seven Investing Now, but a lot of it is Al great. Not good. Okay. A lot of it, though, is Al free runs. And I understand they're growing and it's a great advertising business. A lot of advertising is moving to that self help. But I wonder what the ceiling is when you and I today could start up a competitor. Now, that's not going to be that successful, but every company that's in the TV space could launch a product like this, and you're seeing more and more of them launch. There's going to be some end to the hunger to watch Manimal reruns. Right. Um, I, I think the, the proof is in the pudding, right? That the growth, I think this past quarter, um, MAUs for Pluto TV hit 28.4 million. That's, I think, around, up around 10 million this year, obviously helped by COVID. And it's important to realize that this is a quality product that people love. The user experience, user interface is phenomenal. That 
there was just, excuse me, um, an article in the Wall Street Journal last week um, that said, we love Pluto TV. We don't want to come home and think about um, what we should watch. And what really makes Pluto TV unique is that is where they are showing season premieres of Showtime shows, Paramount Plus shows. So it fits in beautifully into the um, overall uh, CBS uh, Viacom CBS ecosystem. And, and what people are talking about too, there's sports on there for free. You can find some good D1 basketball, lower end D1 basketball, but Viacom CBS at any moment can twist the heat up, turn the heat up, and, and put in NFL rights. UEFA Champions League, PGA, and CBS. Actually, actually, they can't. Um, the, the rights picture for that is super duper complicated. So well yeah those are all those yeah those are all going to be sold separately so uh, my brother's in this this space um so i you know to to give you an example my brother did the miami dolphins hard rock stadium naming deal and all and all of their media rights deals so media rights could they buy rights to the nfl on that platform yes but those are going to be very expensive where they can ratchet up the sports is what you were talking about that sort of like i went to hofstra if you want to find televised Hofstra games, you, you need a satellite dish and, and an explorer. That kind of content, a lot of which is also on ESPN Plus, that content's out there. Which There's costs a, money. Say that again? Which costs money. ESPN Plus costs money. Right. So you're going to see your fifth best professional wrestling association. Uh, they're going to be on there. And there is some value to that. Most of that is not proprietary. And I agree, the Pluto interface is a lot easier than the Roku interface for finding that stuff. I I think there's value. I wonder where it tops out because I don't think there's a lot of great content on there. I think there's a lot of background content because clearly your top tier content is not going to be on your free advertising supported platform um, unless there's a strategic reason for that, like promoting a paid platform. And you might see things like you're seeing with Peacock where you get you know, a few episodes of The Office at a time for free. I'm not negative Pluto TV. There's just very little you can own with it. And going forward, I I do think it's going to grow. I think more ad dollars are going to go to that. But the rest of it, that's the part I like the most about the company. The rest of it is I don't love their content. And And if I'm making an investment and I'm going to invest in a company like Disney that is just the beginning of the growth story and doesn't have to spend as much money. There's going to be a lot of failures in Paramount Plus. Disney has almost no failures. You you mentioned iCarly. Well, iCarly is maybe the level of the the spin-off show Disney has where the the fork from Toy Story talks and you know it has an audience, it's going to do well, but that's minor content for Disney. So their ability to have hits if I'm looking at the investments, that's where I'm going to go. And when I look at CBS, I, I, it's investable. You've convinced me of that. I just see better places to put my money. But Alan, make your closing argument because I think you've changed some people's minds here. Great. Um, before I do that, if I may, um, Pluto TV, what about the international growth, right? That this past quarter, they went from 6 million to 7.5 million MAUs internationally. They've launched in France, Italy, um, Latin America, in with um, local channels with the native tongue. And I think um, if you love Pluto TV, and let's say that levels out at 35, 40 million MAUs domestically, you can see bigger than that internationally. And um, so, so to wrap up my closing statement, 
I think we are in the second or third inning of Viacom CBS, which is quite the statement because it's a really storied um, um, company. And I think like the management says, their best days are still ahead of them. And the reason for that is they are understanding what it takes to succeed in the modern world. Content is king. Watch out, they're coming February 24th. I think there can be lots of good investments that aren't the best investment in their space. So I would liken this to, for a long time, I, I liked Dunkin' Donuts as a public company but I just like Starbucks so much better that I had a hard time putting my, same, same thing with Panera uh, when they were public. Though Panera irritates me because I don't want to assemble my own coffee. Like just put the yeah. in my coffee. So you're watching Seven Investing now. This is Alan Sokoloff. He is one of our affiliates. Alan, how do people find your newsletter? Um, thank you for asking that. Um, there's a couple places. I think the easiest place is at Stocks Cruising on Twitter. Um, and then there are linked to our newsletters there. Our newsletter comes out once a week. Um, we are growing as fast as Pluto TV, but without the revenue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we, we, we're, we we're up to something really special and we would love um, for the seven investing community to hop onto what we're doing. And, and well we can't say enough how happy we are to have your perspective because you know i'm the oldest guy in the seven investing team and i'm not that old i'm 47 years old but having all different angles and views on it because there's definitely I, I like to think i'm a very young 47 because most of my friends are, are, are young <laughs> most of the investment most of our team is is pretty young but there's things you're going to experience that i didn't experience i'll give you an example when i went to college and my brother went to maryland so i'm pretty familiar with maryland when i went to college i had a phone card so I could make calls home. I did not, the cell phones weren't a thing. Uh, we had a cable package as part of our dorm and I did not have internet access. So your world is very different than the perspective I have on the world. And you might, for example, go out in a couple of years and start your own first household and getting cable may not be a factor. In fact, your internet provider may have to entice you to get a basic package of, so those are the things Alan's gonna to bring to our perspective as we go, the, the world in different ways. You're, I, this is, I'm sorry to be condescending here, but I was in college once too. Your perspective on, on food ordering is probably really different than mine because- 100%. <laughs> you know, getting a pizza quickly and cheaply is way more important in college than it maybe is as a, as a reasonably successful adult. So thank you for doing this. We are going to do this regularly. We appreciate having you on. Thank you. Awesome, have a good day. Alan Sokloff, welcome to the Seven Investing family. Thank you for doing this. We appreciate so many of you being here, sticking around. Uh, Deepa Patel, we see your question. That is a great one to send to us uh, for our subscriber-only show on Friday. Uh, that's for members only. Uh, you can join at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. If you would like to send us an email, it is info at seveninvesting.com. And you could reach us on Twitter at 7investing. For Alan Sokoloff, for Max Chasco, for Simon Erickson, I am Dan Klein. We will see you on Friday. that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice.
Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.